You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Friday, May 6th, 2016, and in this week's final show of the school year, we'll be discussing three films that are soon to play at Film Scene. Our lineup includes the gothic romance Crimson Peak, which plays at Film Scene tomorrow night, Saturday, May 7th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll discuss the strangely existential animation Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back, which plays next Saturday, May 14th at 11 p.m. as a conclusion to this semester's Bijou After Hours programming. Finally, we'll talk about Norwegian director Joachim Trier's new English-language drama, Louder Than Bombs, which opens at Film Scene next Friday, May 13th. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have the returning Changmin Yu, fellow member of the Bijou Film Board and Cinema PhD student. Welcome back, Changmin. Happy to be back. And we have Garindra Selleck, film critic and columnist for The Daily Iowan. Welcome, Garindra. Thanks for having me. And I'm Catherine Steinbach, Bijou member, PhD student, and summer celebrator. Summer. <laughs> it's happening, guys. We're so close. Not yet. <laughs> uh, let's begin with our first film, Crimson Peak. Uh, Mexican writer-director Guillermo del Toro excels at dark fantasy. Crimson Peak is a particularly beautiful one, a gothic romance with brilliant and lovely actors, shocking gore, and many ghosts. Sweet young American Edith Cushing, played by Mia Wasikowska, sees ghosts she has ever since her mother died. This has inspired her writing career, infusing her imagination with horror and romance alike that she transfers into stories. She can afford to write because she's a wealthy heiress. And she meets an English baronet, Thomas Sharp, played by Tom Hiddleston, who woos her but obviously wants her fortune. He's charming and intense and a little spooky. Who wouldn't be taken in? Edith's father mysteriously dies, removing the final obstacle to their marriage, and off they go to the sharp country estate in England. But Allerdale Hall's dilapidated walls hold many secrets and many, many, many ghosts. The secrets are guarded particularly by Thomas's sister Lucille, a stunning and icy performance by Jessica Chastain. Edith's romance is soon overpowered by horror, both supernatural and natural. So despite my usual squeamishness, I couldn't help but like this film and its intricate set design, special effects, and camera work. The tension between 19th century beauty and horror is almost impossible to turn away from. This is often true of Victorian-era stories such as Jane Eyre, who Wazakowska has also played recently, um, or of Victorian history. After all, this was the era of Jack the Ripper. The texture and color and repressed sexuality makes everything seductive, even murder. Del Toro masterfully captures the aesthetic, but how about the story? So to begin our discussion, what do my fellow banterers think of the narrative? Or does the story even matter when there's such beauty to behold? 
Um, okay, so well, first off, we really like Tom Hiddleston on this show. Yes, we um, do. We really like him a lot. Um, endorsed. <laughs> endorsed. Banter For- endorsed. Formal endorsement for Tom Hiddleston. Um, I think the narrative is important to a degree. I think um, Guillermo del Toro's films always, I think with maybe the exception of Pan's Labyrinth, potentially, um, are first and foremost visual experiences and mm-hmm. secondly hold like some significant uh, commentary or overall narrative. I think I think this one, um, as I notice you get to later in your notes, seems a little bit almost too sort of just like cookie cutter uh, story with sort of a strange dark twist. Um, I think... I think the love story is sort of an interesting um, medium or an interesting, like, conduit through which a lot of uh, the sort of, like, tensions in the film can sort of be teased out. Um, One of the things that really interested me about this film is that while a lot of sort of conventional horror films derive their scares from the appearance of a ghost, like the initial appearance. Mm-hmm. In this film, we already know that the protagonist can see ghosts. So it's not the ghosts themselves that are scary, but rather it's sort of like the deeper, I don't know, the, the deeper meanings behind um, what exactly is going on. So you didn't um, think that the ghosts themselves, because I feel like some of the the beauty of this film is the texture of it. And yeah. we have all of these very moist ghosts they're just juicy ones they've got a lot of viscera and uh you know yeah there's something about the actual ghosts themselves that are scary not the like startlingness exactly and that's sort of what i'm saying is that like the ghosts themselves are sort of allowed through her own awareness of the fact that she's like already able to see them this is not like a new thing that she just happens to come into contact with when she enters this house the ghosts are sort of like lent more creative agency in a sense like they're able to sort of define themselves as more than just like a jump scare that are supposed to incite like a certain reaction in the audience or in in the protagonist um and i think i think that's a really interesting device one that would probably benefit a lot of directors from pursuing more um yeah but yeah no i mean i think overall the role of of horror and of ghosts in this film is really interesting just in terms of the narrative because ultimately you know it's not Spoiler alert, it's not like the ghosts that end up being the evil ones necessarily. It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's humanity. It's that is that has the darker underbelly. So Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I feel like the film in general is not ghastly enough. Because <laughs> you know, the phantoms or the ghosts are so integral to Victorian novels. So it is like um like one of the constituting elements uh in its entire narrative. So I don't think like Del Toro pushes himself hard enough to pursue the whole spectrum of possibility of ghost story storytelling in this film. And I think in other films, for example, in his first film, Chronos or Hellboy or even Pan's Labyrinth, like, I mean, the ghosts give those films a very good supplementary quality. Like, mm-hmm. they, they are mostly psychological horrors. Mm-hmm. Like, they are not exactly um, just because, like, they are not your hallucinations, right? But um, I know for Victorian novels, because we have seen so many adaptations, so it has to be more, especially yeah. from Del Toro, we expect more. Yeah. Yeah, so, so y'all weren't necessarily satisfied by the like completely intricate aesthetic of of the film like you were looking for a little bit more from 
from the narrative. I feel like there's so much in this film that is just, I mean, all of the the moths and the mm-hmm. um, and the set design yeah. and the and the like color saturation and all of this interesting stuff i feel like is the difference maybe between a normal you know like watching jane, jane eyre carrie fukunaga's uh jane eyre which mm-hmm. is very for the most part like very gray and brown toned mm-hmm. film you know this one is just like super saturated uh with red and with you know, um, golds and yellows and stuff like that. It's just interesting to see the kind of expansion of the texture and color palette. Mm-hmm. I mean, I agree, but then again, the film wants to be disgusting and corporeal, but it's yeah. not disgusting and corporeal enough. Yeah. Because, <laughs> right? Because, like, there's always... It was the, for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's this very clean-cut boundary between the film female protagonist and those ghosts because those ghosts never really... Uh, touch her right yeah. like there's, n- there's there's no real threat from yeah. from the ghost there's no is, encounter mm. of yeah. another kind in the film so you're just like okay it's there but it's just floating so like you you yeah. have a very immaterial perception of those ghosts i'm not sure if like the threat of the ghost is necessarily is necessarily necessary though i mean i think from the beginning of the film it gets established that not only is she able to see ghosts but also that ghosts have almost more of sort of like an apprentice-like helpful relationship with her with her mm-hmm. than they do any sort of threatening one. I mean, just evident from the fact that her mom comes to her and consistently warns her before going off to, to Crimson Peak of some kind of danger that, that lies yeah. there. Um, so I think establishing the ghosts as inherently creepy but not sort of ill-meaning... Yeah. I think I think but it's not even that particularly helpful though cuz one yeah. of my questions is so <laughs> at the climax of the film the ghostly activity kind of halts right True. then we have all the natural horror mm-hmm. rather than the supernatural horror and my question is like why wouldn't these haunted spirits show up to help things along or at least spectate uh, <laughs> like what strangeness is going but they seem to completely halt at one point in the film, and that seems like maybe a little bit of a narrative hole or something that that they're not around mm-hmm. and and helping along the climax of the film more. I what know. Otherwise, like the, the ghosts would be too much like characters, like they would have like their own agency, right? But that's usually the the taboo for ghost stories. Like you can have ghosts tell things that you don't know but you there's can messages there's communication but there's right. not like action yeah. action no action or interference like yeah. direct right. interference yeah huh. but i mean yeah i i kind of actually i do agree that given how the film was being built up that maybe the ghosts were being given this degree of agency i think it would have been a little bit more fitting if there would have been some no like dea ex ghost that comes in at the end <laughs> to like save the day but like i don't know it's some, it's a little bit more involvement i think yeah, well, because it just seems like they're so present yeah. throughout the course of the film. And then really when the action mm-hmm. picks up, it's like, hey, where did everybody yeah. go? Especially, especially because we sort of tie Edith to the ghosts from the beginning, even before the characters of Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain really even enter. Yeah. Film. So it's like the fact that they're not there to see it all the way through to the end just feels like, I don't know, like a loose end. Yeah, a little bit. So one of my questions is... You know, about Edith herself um, and how she's acted upon for the near entirety of this film. So Mia Wasikowska is a lovely crier, just beautifully, (laughs) beautifully crying tears. Um, 
and uh, wears a corset and hair extensions like nobody's business. And for the most part, it's just kind of like a damsel in distress. Um, it seems to take entirely too long for her to react and assert herself. Uh, were y'all similarly frustrated with this? Or is this just a trope of the Victorian novel that I'm not, or, you know, Victorian narrative in general, um, that I'm not embracing? Well, that, that might be true. But then again, like, because like we, like the audience has this knowledge gap, like not, well, this superior knowledge over characters, actually. So, like, you mm-hmm. know something is going to happen, but the protagonist is not aware of that impending mm-hmm. disaster or whatever and drags on and drags on and drags on for so long. Like, by the time they get to Crimson Peak, we're just like, oh, my God, please happen. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> please get on yeah. with what you have the, to do. <laughs> the second time her mom came back, I was just like, okay. Like, okay, we get it. <laughs> because her mom is like, seriously, you're like, not listening. Don't go there. Don't you're not listening to me. Be a good girl and listen to me. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's that's very interesting. So I wanted to touch briefly on the beautiful gore trend um, because this is not limited to the Victorian Gothic. Um, many contemporary directors are embracing the kind of juxtaposition between meticulous, alluring camera work and especially disgusting violence. Uh, everything Nicholas Winning Refn does, for example, or, you know, Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> I'm very resentful of this trend. Uh, I want to see all the beauty, but I, you know, watching Heads Cave In is not my jam, uh, which there's a little bit of it in this film. Uh, So let's discuss this trend a little bit. You know, um, are y'all on board with it? Do you similarly feel you're subject to a cruel psychological experiment when watching these types of films or shows? Well, I love Nicholas Winding Refn. I do not like Game of Thrones. Um, (laughs) So I'm sort of, I guess I'm sort of in the middle. Um, I don't. I think the motivation in contemporary culture for sort of exploring both extremes simultaneously is just maybe representative of our, I don't know, desensitization to like subtler, more nuanced displays of violence or of beauty. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we just might be getting to a point where we have to indulge sort of all the way to even get, I don't know, any kind of... Any feels. Any feels at all, exactly. (laughs) And I mean, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I don't really know if it's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's it's an interesting direction that that film is going in. Um, and like I said, I'm quite divided on whether or not I like it. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's I think that's about it. Well, I think this that is just one of the elements that is being used to excite the audience. Like back mm-hmm. back then, you were sex or like other stuff, like something that is taboo breaking. But now yeah. it becomes this kind of extreme corporeal torture or whatever, mm-hmm. and and they are usually uh, being placed very very strategically. Like they, you are not seeing them all the time. Oh well, yeah. well, even Game of Thrones, I would say that. Right. Yeah. There's this vacillation. Right. You know, where you kind of you have these almost operatic right. movements mm-hmm. where you have very, very little violence and then boom, there's a huge violent moment and then it dissipates yeah. and then you have you, a you, you'll see the grandiose flight of the dragons, then you'll see exactly. how they eat people. Yeah. No right. op- <laughs> operatic is a very good term for it. Yeah, there's something about this trend that it just seems very like it doesn't seem that super modern to me. It just seems no, like... No, it doesn't, yeah. It seems like a kind of a... Yeah, a reversal to some sort of uh-huh. an operatic form. Or, yeah. Or, or I don't know. Um, anyway, yeah. just 
We'll, we'll end on that violent note. Uh, again, Crimson <laughs> Peak uh, plays tomorrow night at 11 p.m. at Film Scene as part of Bijou After Hours. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Pokemon. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin for Save the Manatee Club. Manatees are wonderful. Their gentle, playful ways are fascinating to watch. Yet these harmless marine mammals face growing threats to their survival. Many manatees are injured or killed from boat strikes or other human activities, and their habitat is being lost. Manatees need your help. Please call Save the Manatee Club at 1-800-432-JOIN or visit www.savethemanatee.org. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back. Who am I? What am I? Why am I here? Changmin, tell us how you confronted these questions posed by the Pokemon philosophy. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back was the first film adaptation of the immensely popular Pokemon franchise. It tells the story of the cloned and genetically modified Pokemon, Mewtwo. It is born into the world with a, sli- uh, with a highly developed consciousness before it gets to explore and know the world. Thus, Mewtwo's first question is why it exists and persists in this utterly alienating environment, enslaved and exploited by humans. Realizing how much superpower he has, Mewtwo then comes to see self as the ultimate evolution of the living beings and attempts to dominate the world with its cloned army. Well, I think I'm giving too much credit to its shadow plot. Or put it in another way, even if the Mewtwo's subjective dilemma is as profound as I described here, the film does not relay the message to the audience successfully. When the film w- was first released, it received widespread criticism from North American critics. Some accused the film of being a hodgepodge of martial arts elements without frills. Others believed only children would get, it, get anything pleasurable out of it. Well, that couldn't come as a surprise if we consider its contemporaneous competitor, the Iron Giant. Well, after almost 20 years, I'm not sure the reputation or, or reputation of the film has picked up, but it does speak to my sense of nostalgia. Back in 1999, it was the heyday of Pokemons. I still remember before Pokemon, every Saturday I watched Power, uh, Power, Power Rangers. Then the cutesy animals came to invade. Not only a TV series, but also Game Boys, collectible card games, and other paraphernalia. All the similar franchises that followed, like Digimon, could not cause quite the same craze again. So, my fellow banderers, do you have a small space in your heart especially reserved for Pokemon? Or were you one of the precautious adolescents that never had the fantasy of owning your colorful pets? I feel like I maybe missed the Pokemon... Situation. I remember Pokemon as as a phenomenon, um, but I feel like I missed the whole point of it. Right? Like I just didn't, I didn't see any of the shows or movies, and and I didn't do any collecting. But I don't. I mean, I guess I was 
in high school by by 1999 so or and like almost you know mid high school so i guess that maybe is too old to be thinking about this but like i just remember this kind of vague background noise of of pokemon <laughs> stuff because it was such a huge phenomenon but but i really have no reference point for it but i just I think it's so fascinating. Like this whole film was like, wow, this is really intense and like <laughs> phenomenological, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't have any particular memories associated with it. I think I'm on the flip side of things. I think I was actually a little bit too young to experience the Pokemon craze in its full force. Um, I myself was more of a Yu-Gi-Oh collector back in the day. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh, um, <laughs> back in the day. But no, for, for, for some so, reason, so like last week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, but for some reason, I don't know, Pokemon never really attracted me, uh, Was came across as too attractive to me. Um, I certainly, I can certainly see, and I think it's quite evident to anyone that would see this movie, frankly, um, like you mentioned in your summary, sort of just like the shallow capitalist motivations of like, <laughs> creating a big budget film that would go on to gross like 200 million in the box office at the height of Pokemon's fame. Exactly. Um, And (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, I just sort of had, I I had trouble remaining honest to my own beliefs and also trying to like justify this film in, in many ways. I sort of, I felt like I can find meaning here, but I, there's no meaning here. (laughs) I, I don't know. Beyond like the absolute surface level. (laughs) <laughs> well, Catherine, talk about uh, talk about your first impressions about this film. You you say it is very existential, but yeah. I mean that only I mean that is only limited to the first ten or twenty minutes of the film, yeah. right? Not and really, like, and like the last like tiny. Yeah, bit. I don't know. Not re- I mean the whole this the whole narrative of this film is based on uh, the difference between um, a Pokemon and a clone. Right? right. So then they're constantly having this, um, you know, uh, existential crisis that's externalized, right? Like, which one is is the more, like, um, powerful or sincere or emotionally touched version um, of the creature? And they have to battle each other. And, and so it's kind of like this battle between a, a, an like an organic creature and then a human designed creature. Um, so it's this kind of fundamental, you know, argument about uh, whether or not science and technology can perfect us or not. And I, I don't, so I was like, and among other things, like among all, all of these other uh, considerations that, that come up here or there. So I was, I had no idea that this was going to be the plot of this film also. So I was like, (laughs) what, (laughs) you know, uh, what is happening with this severe existential crisis? Mm -hmm. And, and the fact that they're all kind of imprisoned by balls, Mm -hmm. right? Like, except for our main, like our main trainer, Ash doesn't imprison Mm -hmm. his Pokemon, but they're like summoned with an object. Mm-hmm. So there's like object and then creature and then human. And so there's all of these kind of relationships about who controls what and and what is a Pokemon. Is it an object? Is it a creature? Is it does it have human emotion? Mm-hmm. And so there yeah, there's this kind of phenomenological yeah. negotiation constantly going on. And I think there's also sort of a question about how strictly those parameters are defined. Um, yeah. 
particularly in the case of, of Mewtwo. I think if I were to find meaning in this film, <laughs> I, w- I would find it in in the questions that it, in sort of the like ontological questions that it raises about how or, or what rather decides what sort of life we're going to live. I, I mm-hmm. couldn't help but think about Zootopia, which is a film that I saw a couple of weeks ago, which was great and everyone should see. Um, and it sort of, it, it, it brings up similar questions to this idea of, oh, Mewtwo was created by these evil geniuses in a laboratory as a weapon, mm-hmm. but does that necessarily mean that he is a weapon or that he has to live out that life purpose just because his creators sort of set that path for him? Um, yeah, what happens when a weapon, like when you use a creature as mm-hmm. a weapon, so like you when you objectify a creature, but then yeah. that that object becomes conscious and, yeah. and has to navigate and negotiate their ontological self. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, it's and, like... And, <laughs> yeah, and, and this, is a, this is a question that gets raised in most superhero narratives at one point or another, where some evil genius will create something that gains a conscience and decides to run astray. And um, I, just, I just don't know if there's anything new that needs to be said about that, especially from Pokemon. I don't know. I, mean, I think these are great characterizations of the potential that a film doesn't realize. (laughs) (laughs) Like I I see, I see your point, but then again, like in this discussion, the role of human never gets to the, uh, the foreground of of the film. Like why? Mm -hmm. And because like Mewtwo is like suspicious of his or its own relationship to human. And like, but like I, we we don't really see how the film tries to um, solve that kind of human animal or human paid, uh, mm-hmm. human pet kind of paradox or like conundrum there, right? Because yeah. okay, Ash, like he has <laughs> his Pokemon's out. Yeah. <laughs> good job, Ash. <laughs> yeah, but that was only like one thing in the film, yeah. and like all these other trainers have their Pokemon's, and they don't seem to like they mm-hmm. seem to treat them well. Fine, whatever, but they are still living in balls, right? Yeah. yeah. So like, and that kind of uh, falls off in the in the later part of the film because because uh, in the later part of the film, like you have this kind of global Pokemon consciousness emerging out of all these Pokemon's united together, right? Because yeah. and, like, and what's the role of human in all of this? Yeah. Right. So I. Well, then, and also (laughs) then, of course, with the, like, ultimate goal of of the film, which is to promote Pokemon as, as, like, a consumer item. Right. Right. Um, And and then, like, so the message to children is, you can enslave your own pet. (laughs) Catch them all. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let them go. Um, And and I, yeah, Yeah. there's something interesting about that. It's like, so the the awakening in the film has kind of nothing to do with the ultimate use in the real world of Pokemon, which is collecting and, you know, and displaying these kinds of cards or what you know, like mm-hmm. yeah. you know, paraphernalia. Um, but then, yeah, if you're if you're following the kind of ethical logic of the film, then <laughs> yeah. you're like literally enslaving yeah. these little delightful creatures. You play with some, you enslave some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. there's a hierarchy. Yeah, obviously. right. Like Pikachu is, you know, yeah. higher on, yeah. the, exactly. on the pyramid. There. Pokemon is so classist, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> Well, I mean, so like, 
So, but like every time when people start talking about Japanese animation, cinematic or televisual, the ecological aspect has to be highlighted, as、mm-hmm. if Japanese people had this authentic connection with the earth. I think the same applies to this film, as we have been discussing. But it also very much exposes the shallowness of such discourses. Do you, don't you think so? I mean, I mean, it is there. Like you see, like okay, J- Japanese people do have some very, very creative way of、um, de- depicting this kind of animate nature, like、mm-hmm. and its connection to the human world. But at the same time, that kind of Characterization is oftentimes very, very just on the surface. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the aren't the are the Pokemon supposed to like certainly Pikachu、um, has this interesting identity as like so it's like a pet creature, but it also has the power of like lightning, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. or like、mm-hmm. I don't know.、Uh, so <laughs> there, yeah, there's so, so there's something about some of these creatures that merge like Earth characteristics、mm-hmm. with animal characteristics. And so then they, yeah.、Uh, but I felt like a, a lot of this film is, you know, is taking place like during a storm,、mm-hmm. you yeah, know, on an island, on an, on island. an island. And so then we're dealing with a particular kind of environment, but we're never really having a ne- like negotiation with it.、Mm-hmm. You know, it's just with the creatures.、Mm-hmm. So there's something about the kind of maybe neglect of the environment that's going、mm-hmm. on, yeah, here that that gives it, you know, me some thoughts about. The、yeah. relationship that's going on here,、mm-hmm. but, but yeah, I mean, I think that you're right that there is this kind of primal association、um, in Japanese animation with with like hybrid identity, right? Like、mm-hmm. that you're somehow a merger of、uh, of you know earth, air, fire, and water, or something <laughs> like that to to be you know、uh, a, a kind of an animus in this.、Um, Animation world, like、yeah. that, you're somehow a merger of all of these things. I don't know. Yeah, yeah.、Um, so、you're, I mean, your your question was in regards to how sort of like Western critics have analyzed or not analyzed or critiqued this film or whatever, rather than in the actual like depiction in the film, right? Right. Yeah. Also,、just、because like this is just a general trend、yeah. in 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 academia, just to characterize Japanese animation as this authentic. Way、yeah. or route to to nature, or like we can reimagine our relationship to nature through Japanese yeah. animation. Yeah,、mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I I I, I don't want to get really dark and whatnot, but like, <laughs> I, like yeah, I mean, <laughs> like I don't know, just we could talk about Orientalism, we could talk about like Said or whatever, and I mean, I think there's definitely something to be said about that here.、Um, that this. Idea of like a sort of ecological stereotype that we assign to Japanese animation in particular and Japanese culture in general is just sort of a way that we I don't know categorize it for our own uses I suppose in the West、yeah. and to sort of extract what we what we want to see in it and sort of yeah for subconsciously or exoticization exactly even beyond exactly. yeah、um, the negotiation between ethnicities that yeah exactly、on. yeah.、Um, Yeah, yeah. I, but it, it was interesting to see this film in the context of some of the other、uh, animated pieces that we've seen over the course of the semester. And I just, I just thought it was, I don't know. I, I guess this, this made me like those other films a lot more,、um, and、yeah. to, to see a lot more, a lot more、uh, truth and value in them that I had than I had before. But、um, I, I think it, it was interesting, sort of calling them into conversation with one another as well. Yeah. 
All right, so let's end on that note. Again, Pokemon Mewtwo Strikes Back plays at Film Scene next Saturday, May 14th at 11 p.m. and is the conclusion to the semester's Bijou After Hours programming. For a complete list of showtimes, check out Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. Before we move on to our third and final film, let's check on the weather. It is currently lovely and fair and 84 degrees in Iowa City. Uh, tonight, later, it will be mostly clear and with a chance of thunderstorms, a low of 58 degrees. Tomorrow, chance of thunderstorms and a high of 70 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Our final film is Joaquim Trier's Louder Than Bombs. Gurindra, please let us know your thoughts about this tense drama before we discuss. So, uh, Joaquim or Joachim, I don't know. Uh, Trier's English language debut, Louder Than Bombs, paints a portrait of a family on the edge of disarray after the death of its matriarch, Isabel, a famous war photographer whose work appeared regularly on the front page of the New York Times. We join the family after Isabel's death, but her character floats in and out of the narrative throughout the film. Trier, known for formerly impeccable but at times intellectually overwrought psychological thrillers such as Oslo, August 31st, and Reprise, revives that style on Bombs, a film that at times feels like it could have benefited from an increased degree of emotional honesty. The film's narrative tension is tightly packed into the initial ambiguity regarding the circumstances of Isabel's death. As those circumstances begin to come to light, partially through a commemorative column written by one of Isabel's colleagues at the Times, The family learns that Isabel's death was more likely than not a suicide. We track the various characters as they attempt to cope with this information, each in their own way. The attention of her widower, Jean, is consumed primarily by his efforts to attempt to curb the impending despair felt by his two sons, and little energy is left to process his own grief and shame about an affair he had been having with his youngest son's teacher. That son, Conrad, an awkward hormonal teenager who, on top of everything else, is plagued by an all-consuming crush on one of the school cheerleaders, has the hardest time dealing with his mother's passing. His older brother, Jonah, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who delivers another iterative performance as a cynical, neurotic intellectual, (laughs) has a much smoother time processing his emotions, but in the subtext of Trier's script, we can't help but notice a deep-rooted sadness that Jonah struggles to keep at bay by means of obsessive over-rationalization. At the heart of the film seems to be a message about the importance and struggles of communication, but to me at least, unfortunately, the film itself, along with its characters, doesn't seem to be able to communicate effectively with the audience, let alone with each other. So I will be upfront about this. Uh, Were the characters and the dynamics depicted in the film believable? Uh, It's usually considered to be taboo to reprimand a film for being unrealistic, and I do subscribe to that belief. But when the subject matter is as intimate as... This, does the director or the writer have any sort of obligation to render it more or less realistically? What do you guys think? Oh, gosh. You know, um, I actually really liked this film. (laughs) Uh, And I thought that um, the kind of surreal um, moments were pretty helpful in my Mm -hmm. uh, understanding of the psychological you know, negotiations these characters were going through. Yeah. Okay. Um, Just to, to clarify, I don't, I don't mean, I don't, I don't have issues with like the unrealistic moments of when Isabel's character sort of come back, comes back in. Those are actually some of my favorite moments. I I mean mm -hmm. more sort of in, in just the like 
clearly scripted way in which all of the characters interact mm-hmm. and and the way in which the family interacts and how each one is sort of relegated to this this stereotype in in yeah. the grieving family and I just I sort of felt like they were all so flat because of that um but but to be fair I do I actually loved the moments where Isabel came back in and okay yeah spoke, so. maybe yeah maybe I just um didn't see the flatness in in mm-hmm. the same way because there were there were very many <laughs> moments between Conrad and Jean, the mm-hmm. father, uh, Gabriel Byrne, um, that were almost, I mean, so uncomfortably strange, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that was a script problem or if that was kind of maybe an actor problem or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I thought Conrad was phenomenal. I thought, really? I, thought he, I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I I, I thought he was one of the stronger. I thought at least that in he, terms of acting. Yeah. yeah, I thought that he did. I thought that he did a good job. Um, I just I wasn't sure whether or not their chemistry was was particularly working yeah. uh, in certain moments, especially kind of the the we have a lot of like angry teen moments. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in surly this. video game moments. Yeah, surly video yeah. game, like a kind of you know stone wall of no communication. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've never had that problem, guys. <laughs> Overly communicative <laughs> is this person. They just took me to Olive Garden, and I just spilled my beans. Yeah. <laughs> All my secrets came out at Olive Garden. Um. Uh. Yeah. So I don't know necessarily if I thought it was unrealistic. I think maybe it was just like this is such an ensemble drama. Yeah. Um, that it's difficult, and also, um, uh, the main actress, um, Isabel Huppert, yeah, yeah. Uh, is so amazing, and her yes. just like face and body, yeah. um, are and just voice too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like are just so fascinating like she just is so magnetic um that it's almost like everybody else in the cast is is just like a is like a stick person because (laughs) next to her she's so she's just so like haunted and beautiful and interesting and and she has so much depth to that character so yeah I, i guess i'm just not sure how to respond i agree with garindra about uh i think the narrative segments don't come together mm-hmm. or cohere. Yeah. Like it doesn't present a believable world. Like you have Isabel Hubert, you have Eisenberg, you have Conrad, you, you have all these ca- characters. They don't seem to give you like a, a picture. Like they are all very fragmented within mm-hmm. their own world. And it's not about, I mean, yes, partially it is about this kind of miscommunication or the impossibility of miscommunication. Uh, but then again, there's, there's something that is wrong with, for example, the chemi- chemistry between Eisenberg and his father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also Eisenberg with, sometimes with, with his mom, uh, Isabel Hubert. Mm-hmm. I, and I know, like, and Isabel Hubert is such a presence in this film. Like, she has that kind of very, very emphatic neurotic energy mm-hmm. <laughs> that is going to overspill like the entire narrative mm-hmm. so like at times it feels too much because i think ultimately this film is about angry teens like yeah, yeah I think so too. <laughs> like boys who, who could not grow up yeah. or like who already grew up but 
Not really. Yeah, because, I mean, Jesse yeah. Eisenberg is an infant in this movie. I mean, oh, this, yeah. the scene when he's looking at the pictures on his computer and he's just like, no, I'm going to throw them all away. And I was just like, <laughs> right, get, yeah. over, get over yourself. Like, like you are already you are 30 or 35. You are a college professor, sir. Like, <laughs> yeah. get over it. By the way, that's the most unrealistic thing <laughs> yeah, I've ever seen. <laughs> and you cannot imagine your mom having an affair. Like, yeah, come I on. I mean, I know it's traumatic, but, like, yeah. it's so immature to... Yeah deal with it that way right yeah. yeah well and and what i thought was interesting is like so the the jesse eisenberg character is is so weird because we don't get a lot of um we we get a lot of kind of insinuation that um that he knows more about the turmoil that was going on in the marriage mm-hmm. you know um but we don't really get it solved necessarily yeah. like we don't really know what he knows and uh, there's no really like kind of a final confrontation about that or, yeah. uh, you know, it's just always kind of simmering in the background. So then, um, you know, we do have a mo- we have moments of revelation with Conrad um, and we have really interesting, um, you know, sharing, you know, towards the end of the film with that. But but with the Jonah character, it's just not. It's not Jonah. Not Jonah there. feels like a device to me. Jonah yeah. just felt like he only ever came on screen when he needed to serve the purpose of Conrad or or even of Jean or of mm-hmm. the mom rather to flesh out her character more. I I just felt like he was such a useless character, um, I, 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 or use useful but like useless. Literally useful. L- literally but- <laughs> useful, but like yeah. that was it. Yeah. I mean, the entire plotline of Jonah is just sort of purposeless like yeah, <laughs> you don't use you, you don't see the point right yeah. like uh he's having this kind of middle age crisis not even yeah, like yeah. just like having a crisis after uh his daughter was born mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and like and, and like there's something that is not right about like the entire biography of this character like he's a college professor but not really you don't see the intellectual moments no. and the, the way and his hair is straight his purpose in the film is to show some some diversity for jesse eisenberg he can he can have his hair straightened this is very oh yeah <laughs> probably true and he doesn't seem to his be his shirt was tucked in the whole time too. right <laughs> he doesn't seem to be that straight out junior faculty member we will see in in our normal life you know as phd students yeah the insulting. junior faculty members yeah. are always the person who are most stressful right yeah so i know he just doesn't click for me yeah it certainly felt i guess maybe one thing that I, I liked about this movie, but maybe is the thing that y'all are tapping into, is that it feels like a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, very much. Yeah, very and much so. and so, and I just like, kind of love that aesthetic. I'm like into that. But I, and I don't, e- maybe I just didn't even realize that that's what I was thinking. Like, oh, this is very much like a play. Um, because of the kind of really utilitarian way that the characters are operating yeah. in certain moments. Um, and yeah, I, I think I just really liked that. Versus, mm-hmm. yeah. I yeah. mean, I can imagine this to be a great chamber play. Like you, you let characters colliding. I think this would be a great stage play. Co- yeah, mm-hmm. like colliding on the stage within yeah. a confined space that you yeah. just see them interact. But here, like you, you see, you still see it, like a trace of it. But like it is so sparse, like it, yeah. it is like spread out everywhere. So like I, I don't know how to put together all these inter intricate delicate moments yeah and yeah. i think i think that it brings up a really good point you had said earlier that 
it was in some ways sort of like an ensemble drama, but I don't even know if it is. I to me it felt more like a bunch of character a bunch of like sort of a bunch of a bunch of attempts at character studies put together um mm-hmm. in in one in one narrative that was sort of like loosely loosely stitched together. Um but yeah, so then here, this sort of brings me to my... Well, let's take oh, a quick okay, we'll break, take a break. Uh, and, then, and then we'll continue <laughs> yeah. uh, w- with our discussion. Um, uh, when we return, we'll d- continue our discussion of uh, Louder Than Bombs. We'll be right back. KRUI is brought to you by Harper College in Palatine, Illinois, offering summer classes from May 23rd to June 6th. Harper College offers multiple summer gen ed classes to help students balance their fall and spring semester course loads. More information about registration can be found at harpercollege.edu summer. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. We are currently discussing Louder Than Bombs. Sorry, Gurindra, I cut you off. No worries. Um, so we, we were talking about character in the film. Um, and my next question is somewhat connected to my first. Uh, did you guys care about any of the characters in the film? Um, if so, was there one that you cared about more than the others? Um, in many ways, they appeared to me to be so sort of meticulously and formally rendered that their identities and motivations felt almost robotic. And like we talked about with Jesse Eisenberg, sort of really just there to serve a means to an end. What did you guys think? Was there anyone that you could identify with, empathize with at all? No, not no. really. But then again, uh, I never liked Isabelle Hubert. But like, I think that's exactly the point. She doesn't yeah. want to be liked mm-hmm. in all of her films. She, and she, she always has that kind of image of martyr. Like she, 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 she's too close to suffering in all mm. of her films. So in a, in a sense that you want to be close to her, but you don't want to identify with her because there's this immense sorrow that is buried inside with her. So, I mean, I think that serves uh, the purpose of her character in this film. But then again, just like it's hard to even get into any of these characters in the film, just because I think, uh, for example, one of the most successful moments in the film is uh, when when the father uh, gets online and plays video games mm-hmm. with, with his son. And I think that's the most successful moment just because like, it is providing an interesting way to cut through their, their dynamic, in, in mm-hmm. a sense. But then other than that, it is so hard to, to identify with all these adolescent outbursts like yeah. that happened with all of these characters yeah. like and and it's it's not even adolescent outbursts that you can think like oh you know like they, they really must be sort of going through struggles in their formative years like the scene when i don't know it's like a, a fifth of the way into the film or something but the scene i think is the first time that uh that gene goes into um his son conrad's room while he's playing video games and he tells him to stop playing video games um, and the kid just like freaks out and puts a plastic bag over his head and like starts <laughs> inhaling. And I was just sort of sat there like, like, re- is this really a reaction that, yeah. like, would this ever happen no matter how upset the kid was? I just, I, I was so like blown away. I don't know. And this might just be the director who I would believe was also a co-writer on this, just his sort of flair for like really, really dark and really like sort of yeah. depressing imagery. I mean, August... Uh, Oslo, August 31st, very much sort of thrives on that, but it, I think it's a much more successful film. Um, 
Well, I, you know, Conrad was kind of a jerk yeah. throughout the course yeah. of the film. And, you know, he's supposed to be pretty young, right? I'm 15, 16? Yeah, I think so. Um, sophomore, Gene. Uh, yeah. Freshman. And so, I, yeah, I definitely had a huge, like, problem identifying with him yeah. because he was so, uh, I mean, you knew that he was haunted by something and, and that he's going through uh you know weird a, obsession a, with this yeah turmoil cheerleader. and yeah like the a strange obsession yeah. you know anyway but um but i definitely did have the moments on the other side where i was identifying with gabriel byrne because he's trying so desperately to communicate mm-hmm. with his son uh with both of his sons right like you can see his like desperation just as like you know, he's trying to hang out with them. He's trying to, like, you know, have moments with them. And he continually gets rebuffed, you know. And it's just like you'd think that there would be some sort of solidarity amongst these men in this, you know, family. Um, and there just seems to be such splintered relationships, you know. Um, and so it's really... I felt like the most for Gabriel Byrne's character, I think, mm. because I was okay. ju- I felt his desperation and his kind of like uncool, you know, navigation of yeah. of of both his sons thinking that he's basically, you know, a worthless father at, at some yeah. point, you know. And this film is also about that mac macro conception of the word. Like no no woman is allowed into their small coalition or whatever, like mm-hmm. they reject any kind of female presence because that, that place is already occupied exactly. by, by the mother. So like, and that coalition doesn't really come together. Like they, mm-hmm. there's this immense gender imbalance in the film, right? Like all the, I'm, I'm not even talking about the politics of representation, but there's this very weird depiction of their interaction with other women in the film. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. They, they, they just feel like, okay, we need some female characters here. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah, they just do not know how to... Like, it, yeah. it is not convincing to see them interact with the women in their lives. Like, totally not. Yeah. For example, like the father's... A relationship with uh, his coworker, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. like you, you just suddenly dump the the woman because your son's sudden outburst in in class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, and there's just there's no real um, understanding as to like. I think there's an interesting moment with uh, Jonah and his kind of side situation. Uh, that happens uh, over the course of uh, of the film, where he se- is seemingly seeking out a woman who met his mother, right? Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. he's trying to literally connect with his mother via this other woman that met her, you mm-hmm. know. And and I thought that that was kind of interesting, but also you know kind of a naive conception of gender relations because. It's not, it shouldn't always be just like literally trying to reach out and touch your mom, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the whole thing about like the sweater that he saw. And, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's this constant l- n- urge to b- feel connected. Yeah. 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 There's just too much, there's too much Oedipus yeah. happening. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in this so. film be- with <laughs> the other wi- like female characters because 
they're not fleshed out as much. They're just kind of these vehicles for mm-hmm. uh, f- that are kind of alternatives to the mother. Yeah, you know? um, they're all very, very representative. Yeah. Um, so w- we all seem to be touching on the fact that Isabel felt like one of one of the one of the best parts of this film, um, despite the fact that she got the least screen time of the principal cast uh, by far. I can't help but attribute this to the questions which her work, her death, and her legacy seem to bring to the table. Um, what commentary, if any, do you guys think this film is making about the effect of an artist's dedication to their craft uh, and what that can have on their personal life and the role of art and of creativity and of creation, which yeah. I think plays a pretty significant part in this film, actually? Well, there's such a, there's like that, there's a bunch of great, interesting scenes at the beginning of the film where we get like faux documentary footage of, of Isabel Huppert as, as this photographer. And she's like on Charlie Rose, yeah. which was a kind of a surreal moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's talking about that she has like, she's in danger and there's all of these horrifying, I mean, she's a war photographer um, so she has these kind of horrifying images, but that are, I mean, like hauntingly beautiful, mm. like all of the photos that they show over the course of this film, which I'm wondering about these real like, uh, New York uh, Times photos. Or? Yeah. I'm wondering like what, where did they find yeah. these photos? Are they one particular photographer uh, who's kind of a, you know, an echo of this character or, you know, um, that was a huge question mark for me, but um, but there's this great interview where they say that, you know, she's she's haunted by this position that she uh, holds um, as photographer and but and yet she feels the responsibility to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and because she has the talent for it, that she must keep going, even though she's in danger all the time. And yeah, and her family life suffers and yeah. all of that stuff. There, so there is something about this film and the kind of responsibility to art or the responsibility mm-hmm. towards um it, at least the kind of global uh ethical you know m- I mean machinations I, I tend to agree but I think the the force of art in a film is kind of diminished by its very didactic message mm-hmm. of family reconciliation yeah. right because yeah. like you do see these poignant moments in the film like for example there's this scene in an airport where uh, Isabel Hubert uh, sees the other guy at the next table reading uh, the newspaper with her photograph mm-hmm. and like the guy was just like f- flipping through and ignoring mm-hmm. that kind of suffering uh, that is happening on the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. I think those moments are the highlights of these films. 